Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Passover Prep Learning Series. I'm so glad that we're sitting down to talk about Pesach because it's about to be Rosh Chodesh Nisan. And um, already, already it's time to focus on questions of Pesach. And I can't think of anything better for us to dedicate Lishma time uh, to doing than sitting down and learning about Pesach. So let's talk about it. Okay. You know, it's... You know, we, we, we normally think of our traditional texts and traditions, oh, it's been that way forever, right? And, and yet we know that that's, that's not the case in so many areas of Jewish tradition. In fact, for me, as a conservative rabbi, the whole concept of evolution of tradition is, is a cornerstone of my faith. And that, I think that's what we're about, yeah. evolving tradition. And Pesach... And because of the centrality of this holiday, and the Seder in particular, because of the peak of celebration, you know, we all, my wife and I always talk about, you go through slavery in preparing the house and preparing everything for Pesach, and then finally you come to the Seder and you are relieved. You have achieved freedom now. Avadim hayinu. Avadim hayinu, right? You, you, you appreciate the freedom, right? Of course, then you fall asleep. But anyway. <laughs> That's the wine, but yes. <laughs> anyway, but, but the fact is, I mean, let's I even look, look at the last 30, 40 years within the Jewish, within the Jewish tradition. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the time of the so, safe Soviet Jewry movement. Many people around the world in the 80s, 70s, in the 80s, when we were pushing for what eventually happened in 1990, um, had a fourth matzah mm. on the table, in the bag, with the other three. And that was the, the matzah for Soviet Jewry. It was a recognition of the fact these are people who can't, don't have, many of them didn't have the capacity to have matzah. Who was making matzah? So, that we remember that, and that was our expression of our physical commitment to to participate in this process. And Lord knows, I'm mean, the, the Jewish people. Uh, once that movement took hold, it began with a few very very committed people, but when that movement took hold, it was powerful. And Pesach, obviously, became a powerful a moment of, of powerful expression for that. So so that's one thing. And then, as we were talking before, when the um, the whole issue of women's ordination arose, and a certain of the senior rabbis in Eretz Israel reacted to that, one of them said, "Women will become rabbis when there's an orange on the seder plate." And so, I think you said that Shoshana Heschel, right, may have been the one to really pick up on that and push the idea. And she said, "Put oranges on the seder plates." So people put an orange on the Seder plate to, you know, as a symbolic expression. Women are going to be, have become rabbis. It's there, you see, rabbi in Israel, you see. So, I mean, that, that's another thing. And then I think also, you know, we use, we use this Haggadah, the Feast of Freedom Haggadah, that yeah. we have, that the rabbinical assembly produced. And it's amazing because here, we are a movement that everybody says we're trying to get through things fast, make things shorter, right? Traditional, but short, 
Okay, and we sometimes have that. that. This Haggadah is actually bigger than the standard Haggadah. The Magid, the Midrash that talks about all the, the miracles that happened that led to the Exodus, this it's got a lot more material. Yeah. And, and, and I think it was because it was developed at a time when the whole concept of creative Haggadot began to blossom, right? All kinds of different designs were, and, and concepts were coming out, dealing with things that were relevant for the age when they were being developed. But the fact is, what the, what we added in there was a richer ensemble of Midrash, so families could pick which ones they wanted. The choices were broader, but what was included now were passages that were relating more to today, or then, in the 1980s, and it's still today. We added, I didn't. I say we, meaning the collective conservative movement, added in this Haggadah, Midrashim talking about women and the role that women played in the, in the, uh, in the, in the Exodus. That was a Kiddush. That was a new thing. The, the Midrashim were old, but to put them in the Haggadah was a new thing. And that was, you know, we, we read those. We read those. I mean, there's a beautiful Midrash about the, the women who, uh, the question was, how was it possible that the Israelites could be fruitful and multiply <laughs> in the midst of slavery? Favorite Midrash. You know that Midrash. The Midrash Rabbah with the no. mirrors, with the bringing of the mirrors. Oh, no. This, no, this is the one about bringing the, the lunch. Oh, even better. Okay, go ahead. You bring the lunch one, and then I'll bring the mirror one. Go. Okay. So, no. So, so the women would take food to the, their men who were working. Yeah. And the, these, I presumably, were when they, they were in the fields. I guess they were harvesting the, the, uh, the stuff for the for the bricks, right? Because the, remember, they had to they 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 had to, to to do that on their own, and they would they would feed their men, and it would give them strength and arousal, and they would procreate in the fields, and that's how. And, and basically, what they were saying, they were doing this to Pharaoh. We're going to find a way to make sure that our numbers grow and we are stronger in spite of you. Mm. And so the women actually were participating, were a major factor in the miracle of the growth of the population. Right. So there's a Midrash in Vayikra Rabbah that has a very similar premise in which Moshe challenges uh, the bringing of mirrors. Why would a, an object that um, a vanity be permitted to be contributed to the building of the Mishkan, um, because that would that would seem so not only mundane but almost sacrilegious, yes. and uh, and the story is told back to him from the divine that the women would bring their men home tired and rest in and, and ready to, to sleep at the end of the day. And they would hold up themselves in front of the mirror and say, look at me, look at how beautiful I am. And then they would, they would procreate. And, yeah. and uh, it's the same, same premise. Right. 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 This idea that, that they needed to keep um, that flame of the Jewish people exactly. uh, alive. W what's amazing to me is um 
is that we managed to bring the women back into the Haggadah, and yet Moshe still isn't in there. Right. That's <laughs> that's so funny to me. It's funny to me because I think about how in Sidor Lev Shalem, we've uh, in the latest Sidor produced by the Rabbinical Assembly, um, Miriam's name shows back up in the Micha Mocha, which shows up both at Shachri and at Mari. If there's a lot of conversation, Miriam is put in brackets in there, and I have a lot of conversation with folks about the Tefillah, whether or not they should add that in the Umiriam uh, into that Tefillah, and. Um, and I, th- I think about that regularly because in the Haggadah, Moshe isn't even in there. So. Right. I, and nobody's pushing that. <laughs> no. Nobody's nope. saying, we want Moshe. We want. No, it, right. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, but that, you see, that in of itself, you know, you think about the, the concept when the Haggadah, when the whole concept was, was put together. The fact that he that Moshe was left out when you know it, it's totally contrary to the to the narrative of the Torah itself. Completely, he was the he was the go-to guy. He was God's go-to he's, guy. He's you know? the protagonist of the story, and, and he's, he's completely people, missing. And the people blame him for the Exodus in later entirely. Time. Not there, <laughs> and I understand why because ultimately this is the whole notion. Remember the Pesach. It, it, this is the we say Sheh Hashirim mm-hmm. because this is the the love. It, it's symbolic of the love relationship between God and Israel, yeah. not Moshe. Yeah. He may have been the Shatchan, but you know who cares about the Shatchan? You know, it's, it's the relationship. So, so these things and, and things continue today. You know, we spent the last number of years in Berlin. You know, we were, when I was teaching at the Frankel College. And the, the, the students last year created the Berlin Haggadah, what they call, and they drew in their own personal perspectives on all kinds of things. Into the, the it was the basic traditional Haggadah, but it, with on, on the different pages, poems and statements and and recipes, you know, seriously for for, for preparation of food on Pesach. And it was wonderful, a whole new thing. You know, within, and the interpretations that were, this happened after, they were putting this together, I guess the, the um, this appeared right after the start of the, the pandemic. Uh, but they had been working on it beforehand. And one of the things that, that pushed them in this was that we had two students who in 2000, on Yom Kippur 2019 were in Hala when that horrible attack on the synagogue occurred, the two of our students were there, and and that generated some pieces in that Haggadah as well. So, I mean, it was an amazing thing, and here we are, 2019-2020, a a new version, and it's happening all over the place today. So, the, the evolution in the Haggadah in our own time has been unbelievable, and just to, to sort of finish this topic, um, and if I can find it, maybe later on I can show a picture of it. But um, many of us have copies of the Zhik Haggadah, which was produced by a, a, a wonderful artist. Some of you know, the, some of us may, there, there's a, a, a beautiful illuminated version of the Israel Declaration of Independence. It's, it's sort of a classic one. And Sheik was the, the artist of that as well. Anyhow, so he did his Haggadah. And it was at the time of the rise of Nazism. 
And the it's clear when you look at the pictures of Pharaoh and his officers and the you know the taskmasters and all these things, they're you know you you think of these powerful heroic people, you know you know they, they're scary people, and people were wondering you know is there a connection between this and and the Holocaust and, and you know because that's when he was doing these things and they they actually I don't know what tipped I forgot what tipped them off they X-rayed some of they have his early prints I mean no his early paintings. Hand paintings. They, they exist. And when they, they found them, they x-rayed them. And they found that in the early versions of the pictures showing these taskmasters, what appeared as a kind of a gold, gold band on their upper arm was actually covering the original band, which showed a swastika. It showed a swastika. And it was his idea to have that in the printed version. And he was counseled, don't do it. Don't do it. It's, it's going to get you in trouble. It's not going to work. So he, uh, that's what happened. Uh, but it shows you the power of this, of this book and of this, of this uh, experience called Pesach. You know what else it shows you the power of? And, and I think it's so important. It shows you the power um not just of x-ray, but of Geniza. I remember the first time walking into the seminary's rare book room and um, being introduced to this idea of marginalia and the concept of, of, of girsaot, of versions of um, manuscripts and of documents existing and how important it is for us to have the marginal notes of, of, people, real human beings from history, uh, oh, and, I, and to know what they were thinking, right? To understand their, their, um, their thoughts and, and, and what they were imagining. And I have encouraged every student of mine to write in their Sidorim and in their Tanakhs with, um, with pencil, to write directly in them if they possibly can, to own their books and to write directly in them for history, right? Just... To, to write write in your books because it's because of people writing it's because of Jews writing in their books in history that we yeah. <laughs> that we have what we have I, I really believe deeply in it and um it's because people you know it's because he drew that swastika and then and then painted over it that we know that he was thinking that and and that that's such a powerful image to me that he did it even if he painted over it right and I think that's a, that's a good that's a good terrific observation. Um, you know, I when I was, I've read manuscripts. See, I even published a little manuscript that was heretofore unpublished when I was working on my doctorate and, and the years thereafter. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate the significance of of the of marginalia and and also of of yeah. having ancient documents that you can look at. That yeah. I mean, the, the get Cairo Geniza has radically changed. Our understanding of Jewish history, as have the the Dead Sea Scrolls, as an example. Yeah. But since we're talking manuscripts and stuff like that, let me jump back in time now, yeah. because there's a lot of pieces of the Haggadah, of the traditional Haggadah, that have changed. I mean, if you read the Mishnah and read the Talmud, and then you know go 
see what we have together here that sort of evolved in the later middle, you know, in the Middle Ages. Okay. But you go back to the earliest levels of these things, things change. Significant things change. To me, one of the most significant things, and this is something that already modern commentaries on the Mishnah have noted, the Mishnah notes four questions which are different from the ones that we use. That in and of itself is interesting. But they say originally there were three questions. Three questions. Why do we eat matzah? Why do we dip twice? And why do we have roasted meat? And they're, they're suggesting that that may actually go back to, to temple times. Because it is, you know, it, it's, it's so old. And, and it makes sense because... Those represented three elements of the Pesach, of, of, of the Seder, of, of, well, actually of the celebration, uh, that were essential, that, and that were unusual, right? And then apparently what happened thereafter was the, um, there were cha- changes that took place after the destruction of the temple. Right. And, and you still had left over one of those, the, the, because then it became four. And the four were matzah. But then the, the, um, there was the, the, the dipping twice. Uh, there was a remnant of the, the roasted animal was still there. And, um, the fourth one, let me see, not maror. No, no. Leaning. They, they they added I think they added the maror, oh the leaning no 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 that came in there they, okay yeah the leaning was the latest the leaning is Babylonian apparently because what what they theorize is that also w- w- went through changes so the, the 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 reference to the roasted animal was taken out because they were too far beyond the that may have been left as a hope for rebuilding type thing. Right, for the rebuilding yes. of the temple and the sacrifice, but they realized that wasn't going to happen. That came out, and Maror was added, right, uh, in its place. Yes, and and that's the um, that's the Kulanu Masubin line, right? right? Well, that's the one I want. No, that's the fourth one I want to get to. Right. What is that? Okay, you're gonna get to so the Maror. So the Maror was added in place of the 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 reference to the Paschal Lamb because it was eaten with Maror, right? Remember what Rabbi mm-hmm. uh, what Hillel said. Mm-hmm. Right, in the Pesach, you eat it with with matzah and maror. Right, mm-hmm. so I mean, the maror was intrinsic with with the Passover sacrifice. Right, but then, yeah, the other. So what happened was the that one fell out, and then eventually in Bavel, they were asking, "Why are we reclining?" In Eretz Yisrael, they didn't ask it. Because the Greco-Roman feasts, on the basis of which sort of the certain of the customs, like dipping food in in in, in I mean vegetables in in the vinegar or salt water, right? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things were carryovers from a a formal meal that was you know if, if you were wealthy and you had a formal meal, and this relates to the cups of wine, which I'll get to in just a second. Right. Um, you had to do certain things. And of course, when you reclined, you know, the pictures of Caesar, you know, with, you know, peel me a grape, you know, that type of a thing. All right. That, that's the fact. 
So reclining in, in the Greek and Roman world, particularly Roman world, when a lot of the stuff was being ritualized in the Jewish communities, that was normative. In Babylonia, people didn't recline. So, so my, why are we reclining? My teacher, Moti Arad, who is a student of Rabbi Dr. Judith Hauptman, has a theory about that line. And I don't know if it's a Hauptman theory or if it's his own theory, but it's a beautiful theory that I can't get out of my head every year. Go ahead. And he says that Misubin is related to Sivuv or Sovev. And it has to do with the round table nature of sitting around for the um, for the round table discussion of the Seder. Oh, that's it's nice. not reclining at all. Right. It never right. referred to reclining. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and it's the same theory, but right. it never referred to reclining. It referred to why are we sitting around one another? Because typically that would not have been the arrangement of sitting at a table, but it's sitting around for a a um, conversation because it's a roundtable discussion. I understand. Very interesting. Yeah. Right. Because they would have brought the table to them. That's the discussion in this Tosefta and the Mishnah. They brought them a table before them and they sat around. Um, right. right. So that's the picture that I have in my head. Right. Yeah. But I, I think the same thing relates to the to the four cups. I mean, it turns out they fit in to the needs of the structuring of the Seder as it evolved. Right. Right. So the, the you know the the first cup is kiddush right, the second cup has to do with the uh, conclusion of the magid, the third cup is birkat hamazon, and the fourth cup is the end of the seder itself, right? So that that makes sense. But there again, if you go back to these classic, you know, feasts of the ancient world, wine was an important element, and as today, I you know we if you go to a formal meal. I mean, I have been I have been in my old days when I had to go to all these community banquets and everything, you know, <laughs> which I'm glad I don't have to go to anymore, although sometimes they're nice. Um, <laughs> have a number of different wine glasses on the table, right? And and you get different wine that depends upon how elegant the meal was, you know, and how much you paid for the dinner. Anyway, so different wine glasses because you had your the wine to have with the first course and the wine with the main course and then the dessert wine, right? So that notion of multiple wines is is not something, it, it, it seems to, again, been bar, brought into the, now the fact is two cups of wine is still normative for Shabbos in many traditions, right? You have a cup of wine for Kiddush and then you have a cup of wine at the end of, of Birkat Hamazon. Right. So those two remained as inter integral parts of of feasts of of, of holiday feasts, right. but the other ones were you can understand you know the notion of you complete the magid and the other one with the the end of the seder. But again, that that framework, that ancient framework exists. But here's go ahead. Yes, I, I just want to clarify. I think a lot of people, possibly who are listening to this podcast might not be familiar with the custom of benching on a coast. And so I just want to clarify for a second this whole custom, yes. because we see it on Pesach night, but we don't always see it uh, at Shabbat. And it's something really beautiful. And this idea is that just like imagine sort of the clutching of the of the cup at Havdalah, imagine that throughout Birkat Hamazon, you're saying the blessings of all of Birkat Hamazon with the intention that at the end of Birkat Hamazon, 
you're going to say Bore Pri Hagafen over this uh, glass of, of wine or cup of wine also. And it's this idea that you're going to extend the holiness of your meal by also, uh, you know, having this this um, cup of wine that's sort of going to be like an aperitif kind of situation, I think is the best way to describe it. Um, though it can be any kind of wine. I think aperitif probably refers to a type of wine. One of those fancy glasses you're talking about. Um, and uh, and so the idea is that when you immediately upon finishing um, uh, Bashalom or whatever the last ver- word is of of, um, of Birchat Amazon, you would then say immediately Borei Priyagafen on that cup that you're holding and drink it. And by the way, when you finish drinking that cup of wine, just like it says in your Haggadah, you then need to say the after blessing on that cup of wine if you're from. But yeah. I just want to say that um, just as... Um, there are some things in this world that are more frequent, um, uh, more frequently done uh, to, if, in a more observant mindset than than um, you know than might appear like once a year. Some people only do this at Pesach, and some people do it every Shabbat. You know, some people only say hamotzi on Shabbat, and some people say hamotzi over every sandwich that they eat. So I just wanted to play out that idea so people can picture it. Well, I mean, I became very accustomed to that because in Germany, that is in Berlin, that's the custom. In our mm-hmm. synagogue, you know, whenever we had a meal and or people's homes, you always had Bartir Guffin at the end of pension. Lovely. So, that's, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But here, too, you see, you get it at the end of the meal, but also you get it at the end of the, of the whole Seder. And so you're nice. right. You're, you're bookending the entire experience with the holiness that the wine represents and the joy. Yeah. And, yes. the joy, and the joy. That's the point, too. Right. Yes. But I think, you know, again, but, but a major, there's a major shift that actually takes place in the order of the Seder when you go from the Mishnah uh, into the Talmud and then later on. Because if you read the Mishnah and Psachim, okay, uh, in chapter 10, the entire um culinary presentation from the dipping, right? The first cup of wine, the dipping, the eating of the matzah, the eating of the uh, sacrifices. I mean, okay. Ending with the Pesach sacrifice. Okay. And then the Birkat Amazon and that the, the cup of wine, all of that precedes the Magid. It precedes the telling of the story of Pesach. And of course, the whole point of that is to evoke within the children their, you know, to, to, to stimulate their curiosity. Right. Because the, the point is they are looking at the physical the actual eating and drinking of all this stuff, this is different from the way we normally do it. Even if, especially if you're a poorer family, you don't do this stuff. And here you have all that stuff that you've done. Why? Then the father, right? You have to, first of all, according to the Mishnah, you're, you allow your children to you say, okay, ask questions. Okay, then if you if they don't know what to ask, then you feed them, you tell them the four, then they ask the four questions, or the three or four questions. And then the father tells the Magid, tells the Magid, and then they 
they go to the Hallel and then they, they wrap it up. But why did it happen that we do a reverse? We do the Magid first, right? We have Kiddush, dip the greens, right? Karpas, story, the four children, and the da 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 da, the Magid, all the Midrash and the interpretation, okay? And it says, Kol the more you can talk and tell the story, the more elaborate the story, how much, how praiseworthy it becomes. And then you go through the Magid, which indeed is very praiseworthy, because you're telling more and more. Then you have the second cup. Then you eat. Very wise decision on the part of the sages during the Talmudic period. Because if you really increase the amount of the telling, if you do that after you eat and drink two cups of wine, what is going to happen during the most important part of the Seder, which is the telling of the, of the miracle? You are going to fall asleep, especially the children who are the ones who have to hear this. If the Magid, if the telling is short, tell it beforehand. <clears throat> If it's once it gets longer, you got to flip it. And I think that's the reason it makes perfectly good sense. Why do we have all those fun songs at the end to keep the children's, you know, excitement going so we can sing these funny songs at the end? So the point is that whole issue of the pedagogic, the educational value of this thing. This is the prime. This is the meal that that has a powerful if you think about it, educational function. It says, tell your children, right? You've got to tell it. That's unique. You have to, and you have to, so the kids have to be in a situation where they'll listen. And it, after dinner, they get very antsy, right? Think about it. Think about our kids, right? Anyway, so that's what I believe what happened. And it may, but the fact the fact is the orig, we know exactly what the original Magid was because it's in the Haggadah. The original Magid was the Arami Oved Avi. That passage from the Book of Deuteronomy, chapter twenty six, which is often cited. The the whole passage is cited in our Haggadahs today, which is that block of verses that people knew because that's what you said in Temple times when you brought your first fruits to the temple every year. So that was already a piece of liturgy, a piece of worship that people knew. That was it. What happened, of course, if you look closely through the traditional Haggadah, they take that passage and parse it into little clauses, little phrases, and bring other Midrashim from Exodus and from number from. Uh, from Deuteronomy, for example, and, and plug them in and make midrash by relating one. They, they, they'll say, and they and they, they they cause us great pain and suffering. Then they will quote the passage which says da 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 da, and so forth and so on. So the midrash grew and grew and grew, and of course today, with this guy, it's grown even more. So you do all of that before you eat. And then you eat. That's I, a change. I realize, as you describe that, that you have set out such a wonderful idea about the Pesach Seder 
that I've never thought of in this framework before, but it's such a wonderful point that you've, you've made by laying it out this way, which is that people over time with satyrs have taken the instruction of Hareze and Meshubach with the Magid, this idea of extending the Midrash of the Magid, and they have done the same thing with ritual innovation of the Seder to go back to the beginning of what you and I were talking about when you started talking about the extra matzah and the orange on the Seder plate. And as I'm thinking about the virtual Seder that we're doing as a community this year, and I looked back on last year and what we did as a community and all of the traditions that people brought, I'm thinking people have invented the most amazing things. We we have gone bananas over the Haggadah, but not just over the Haggadah, over, over the Seder in a way that I can't think of any other holiday that we have done so many ritual innovations in a Midrashic way to, uh, just in an extended way and, and said, like, let's just... Um, extend and extend and extend. The bigger that we can make it, the better. And and that it's felt so permissive and right and authentic to do it that way. Absolutely. I mean, even even the Haggadah we have now, if you think about what we do with uh, Kos Eliyahu, yeah. right? I mean, you know, Elijah. So that we we the tradition developed over. You know, I don't know when it began. It's the easiest thing, by the way, if you want to sound very erudite and in, in understand Jewish history and Jewish traditions and literature li, uh, liter, uh, and liturgy and customs, oh, it's probably the time of the Geonim. If you say that, you're covered, which is from about yes. 650 to 1100 BC, uh, CE. If you say that, you're, you're covered, you know, because it's probably true. <laughs> when a lot of stuff was fixed, as you know. Anyway, but the point is, what do we do when they open the, this whole whole idea of Kose Liyahu? And, and it may come from the fifth reference in that passage, right, uh, to, you know, from Deuteronomy, there's a fifth verb, right? Right. And, and it, it, Valakakti, and I took you, right? It, yes. It, land. it, it is, it is, and, and that motivated the tradition, there's a fifth verb that's not covered by the four cups. We got to have a fifth cup. What do you put the cup for? Mashiach. Eliyahu Anubi is going to come and announce the coming of the Messiah. So that happened. But then they would open the door and utter this horrible curse, cast your wrath upon the nations who do not know you, who tried to kill us. And it is proposed that this happened possibly in the Middle Ages, when the fact is, because Easter and Pesach fell at the same time, we do know for a fact that there were pogroms held at Easter time, which impacted Pesach. So they were opening the doors and saying, "There's nothing here. Come on in. There's no, you know, all the all the the the, the uh, uh, conspiracy theories that you have developed about what we do at our seders is not true." Okay, so it is. That's that's one suggestion as to how that whole concept developed. Hmm. But now you think about it, this Haggadah uses that as a whole memorial based on the the uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which took place at Pesach time, 
right? There's a whole Holocaust memorial piece in here that you never found in the earlier Haggadot. And there it is, and it's part and parcel of this thing, and it's good, it shouldn't be forgotten. And, and by the way, there are people who even modified the verse of cast your wrath upon the nations because it sounds very nasty from our part, cursing everybody else. Although the kicker is, you know, it depends how you want to midrash that, you know, because it says, who do not know you, right? So if we presume that, you know, our beer beloved Christian and Muslim friends, they know God, so it does include them. Thanks. The others, whoever whomever they would be. Okay. Right. Different commentators throughout time have felt differently about who <laughs> is included in that. Rambam was pretty permissive. Yes. Um, yeah. When, when I learned Pesachim with, um, with Moterad back at uh, Mahon Shechter years ago, which was a wonderful dive into it, he said this thing that stuck with me through the years, and I'm coming back to it now because we're doing our, our siyum, our, um, are finishing up the book of of a of a book. We're doing a Mishnah this year for the um, for the uh, fast of the first form um, for Tanit Bechorot this year. So um, as so the rabbis are studying it together, and it's coming back to me now. This this concept that he taught um, that's so beautiful is that originally in the Haggadah, as it was built. There were these three geological layers to Pesach. There were really three Pesachs, three Pesachim ideas. And the original idea of Pesach, the original layer, was the Pesach story, the Exodus. The next one was Yom Tov, like Chagavit, this idea of, of, a, of a holiday that was a Korban-based holiday that commemorated that original Pesach. And the next geological layer was this sage-based conversation that talked about the Korban-based holiday that commemorated the original story of Pesach. And those were the three original geological layers. And everything that we've done since has been a representation of those three original geological layers. And that if you look through the Haggadah, you're basically (laughs) identifying those major three geological layers. But as I think about it, and as you're describing it, and we look at these Haggadot, even now, as I look at Haggadot from the 30s, 40s, 50s, I can begin to see these strata of different geological layers that have been added through the years. You can see these 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 layers of Jewish history. It's basically the Gaonic layer, this giant chunk. And it's the medieval layer, right? We're seeing these huge layers. And people have done Haggadot that, that show these with colors and history. Yes. Right. But it, it is amazing, and maybe it's a wonderful thing um, to sort of encourage as an exploration at Pesach time to think about what what layer you're looking at when you're when you're doing a particular piece of the Haggadah. Are you are you looking at a layer that's that's talking about you know the original Passover story, or are you just engaged in conversation, just like other Jews at one time in history were engaged in conversation? Oh, yes, exactly. Absolutely. I mean, there are all kinds of nuances to this stuff, uh, you know, and the more you read about it, the more fascinating it becomes. Uh, one thing that I think is often overlooked is, you know, at, toward the end of the Magi, we, we learned that the Rabban Gamliel said that you have to say, if you don't say Pesach, the passage dealing with Pesach, Matzah and Maror, those little passages that he cites, you must say this in order to fulfill your religious obligation. But he's making a radical statement that has to do with another piece of 
liturgy that he instituted, because Rabban Gamliel is the guy who's associated with, with the fixing of the Amidah. And the point is, the common denominator there is the words of prayer are substitutes for physical sacrificial offerings. Mm. And that's critical because that is a concept that changed the nature of Jewish worship. You can say words and they have the same impact in your relationship with God as offering physical things. And to me, that is astounding. We, we read it quickly because it's at the end. But it's an amazing hop on his part. And I think that is, you know, remember, Gamaliel is doing all this stuff within the generation after the destruction of the temple. And he, along with his colleagues at that time, like Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai and others, are trying to create new interpretations of religious expression where you can continue ideas that were viably and, and actively carried out with the temple, even without the temple, because there is no temple. You know, uh, Rabbi Rambam, that sounds like a very familiar problem in 2020 and 2021. That feels very real and very yes. emotional. Yes. I'm serious about that. That's very resonant. And, and I have thought about that very often. Yeah. And how wise and how terrified our sages must have been, those to whom this was very serious business. Oh, yeah. What is Avodah and Avodah Talev now? What is worship without a temple? I mean, the, the insistence that this terrible situation must be temporary. I understand that very well now in a real way that I did not understand before this pandemic. Sure. And, um, and that they were able to create this system of, of words as sacrifice, of words as worship was just profoundly um, innovative and faith-filled. Right. Um, and uh, it feels very relevant. Yes. I mean, they pick up that picks up on certain statements the prophet makes, like Hosea. Hosea says, you know, uh, you know, don't bring sacrifices, bring right. words. Right. And that already because he he was very down on the 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 uh, cold ritualization and manipulation of the sacrificial system in the eighth century before the common era. But that sets a kind of a paradigm that is very appreciant, right? Because it becomes meaningful absent the temple. And even today, yes. because if you got to say words, it means you got to think and you got to think, you got to feel, right? And those yes. words should express the, the your, your angst, your anxiety, your pain, yes. as well as your praise. And we, yes. we have created systems that allow for that to happen. And, and that's the beauty of being able to liturgize, to be able to put ritual into verbal form. And we, you're right, we should not belittle it. That's a yeah. powerful, powerful force. And, and what I hear you saying about uh, the history of the Haggadah is that Jews everywhere should feel that just as our sages had the 
right to innovate and improvise and create new traditions, it's in our hands now to do that. Right, exactly. And, and to express the essence of what the ideas here are, the powerful values here, freedom and, and relationship and human-God relationships and interpersonal relationships and, and not hating people and all this stuff is all here. And yet it's interesting. People say the Siddur, right, the, the, the prayer book, is the people's book, right? Because people, not everybody studied Talmud or Mishnah, but everybody prayed, okay? And today, even more so, this is the people's book. Because so many Jews who may not go to synagogue regularly and may not be comfortable with everything in the in the Siddur, they have these books in one form or another. This is the people's book. The Seder is, is the people's, that and Shabbat are the two big celebrations of people. Well, good. Make them meaningful. Make them relevant. Enjoy them. Learn from them. Relate to them. Make sure everybody participates in them. Say the right words. Enjoy the meal, right? Come away spiritually enriched and remembering the basic values that this book contains. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.